Good morning, Redeemer. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 16, as we're going to continue our study of the book of Matthew this morning. So as many of you know, Jeff is, uh, Jeff is in Columbia this week, um, still teaching and preaching throughout the country. We got a little scare a couple of nights ago. He texted us and said, guys, be praying. Things are, things are starting to rumble a little bit, and I'm kind of feeling a little, little, little funky. And um, so, boy, we prayed. I just, I remember, I just, I just asked Natalie a second ago, I said, how's our boy doing? He's like, she said, nothing, the little Pedialyte wasn't able to get him through. So hopefully he's, 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 he's on the home stretch and, and uh, finishing the, finishing the course. But um, uh, it's, we're, what an honor to be able to have the, to send him to the nations this week. And, and we look forward to having him back uh, next week. But meantime, I have the privilege of sharing the word of God with you today. And boy, what a text he left for me. Um, Jeff told me he said he was tempted to drag his feet a little bit or maybe speed up a little bit um, so that he'd be able to preach this text. Uh, But lucky for me, he decided not to. So I have had the distinct joy and honor of studying and thinking about um, this text today that is so foundational to the Christian faith. I mean, our text today is what I would call a hinge text Meaning that the whole narrative of the gospel of Matthew begins to take a major turn beginning at verse 13 of chapter 16. Jesus is about to begin his journey towards Jerusalem. So he has to begin to prepare his disciples for what's going to occur there. And more importantly, he has to begin revealing what he is preparing them for from the moment that he had called them to follow him. The reason this text is so foundational to the Christian faith is that, that this text is as relevant to you today as it was to the first disciples that we will read about. This is not just their identity, it's our identity as well. So as is our custom, please stand with me if you are able in honor of the reading of God's word. And we're in Matthew 16 and we're going to begin in verse 13 and we'll read through the rest of the chapter. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still other Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bound on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven." And then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan, 
You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the, in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Pray with me. Father, what a magnificent text we, we, we examined here today. God, thank you that it's through your word that you, that you, it is through your word and your word alone that you reveal who you are. And it's only by your calling that we understand who you are and that we understand who our identity is in you. So God, as we always ask, would you please open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law this morning through this magnificent text. We pray this in your name. Amen. So at the heart of our text today is a question. And it's not just any question. This is the single most important question that any one one of us will ever answer in our lifetime. And the question, of course, is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus is about to reveal the gospel identity of his disciples, but before they understand who they are and what they have been called to do, they first have to be crystal clear about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's the path of our text today. Jesus makes sure his disciples are all on the same page concerning his identity. And then in light of that, he reveals four attributes that should make up the identity of every disciple. So let's get to work. When Jesus told Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, he was simultaneously proclaiming two distinct truths. Number one, he was proclaiming that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to view Jesus. Now, there is a whole variety of wrong ways, but they all share one single thing in common. They didn't come from God, but from flesh and blood. Or in other words, from faulty wisdom and the faulty logic of man. And conversely, if you do have a right view of God, that that didn't come from you. It didn't come from flesh and blood or human logic. It only can come from God. So I think the range of answers to this question can be summarized into really three categories. There are those that are accurate, revealed by the Father. There are those that are partially true, and those that are outright false, both of which are revealed by flesh and blood. Now, outside of, 
outright denial of his existence. From an Orthodox Christian viewpoint, the answer that's probably most erroneous would be that of the Jews who historically have viewed Jesus as having been the most influential and therefore, consequently, the most damaging of all false prophets. While they acknowledge his, his, his historic existence, you will typically not hear an Orthodox Jew refute the validity of his trial and crucifixion as a false teacher and as a blasphemer. And, and then while there are certainly those who deny his existence or his virtue, I would say that the much broader but equally inaccurate view that we see in our text and in our world today is the true but incomplete. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now to be clear, the word on the street was not that Jesus was one of these people reincarnated, but rather they're saying who they think he was most like. And I think it should be noted that none of their responses were defaming, were they? Nor were they technically incorrect. Jesus may have indeed been favorably compared to each of these godly prophets mentioned. But as we'll see, a, par- a partially true answer is still the wrong answer. To illustrate this, <clears throat> Many of you may remember an incident that happened last year in Washington, D.C. when President Trump made an impromptu visit to McLean Bible Church and he asked Pastor David Platt to pray for him. Now, if imagine, now imagine if prior to the president coming up on stage, if, uh, if David Platt stood before his congregation, he announced, ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to welcome to the stage the star of the hit show, The Apprentice, Donald J. Trump. (laughs) Well, I think it's fair to say that rather than applause, what you would probably hear would be the sound of a collective gasp. And whatever happened next would likely not be favorable to Pastor Platt. And even if he tried to to recover by saying, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, what I really meant to say was it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the stage the founder and former CEO of Trump Enterprises, Donald J. Trump. Frying pan, meet the fire. I mean, clearly he wouldn't have helped his predicament, would he? Why? Because, of course, there is only one correct and appropriate way to acknowledge the presence of Donald Trump, and that is as President of the United States. Neither of those other answers are technically incorrect, but he would still be rightly condemned for speaking in a way that is at best highly disrespectful of the president. He would clearly not see the president rightly. And there are many today that would say that Jesus was a, was a great teacher and a, and a great moral leader, but they would reject his claim of divinity or Messiah. And while it is certainly true that Jesus was a great teacher and he was a moral leader, if you don't acknowledge his full identity, your answer wouldn't just be incomplete, it would be heretical. 
That's the point of, of one of the great quotes by C.S. Lewis, Lewis concerning an incomplete understanding of Jesus. Some of you know this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. The man who was merely a man said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And that leads us to the epicenter of our text today, which is Peter's answer when Jesus asked him, who asked the disciples, who do you, who do you say that I am? Now, I think it should be noted that when Jesus said you, he was referring to a collective you. He was not asking, he was asking all of the disciples, not just Peter. You guys have been with me all this time. Who do you say that I am? And likewise, scholars would mostly agree that Peter, who was commonly the spokesperson for the disciples, was answering on behalf of all of the disciples, not just himself. And that's an important distinction that we'll see in just a moment. But first, let's examine Peter's answer and Jesus' response. And of course, there's two parts to Peter's answer, and both are remarkable, and both are essential. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. The first part is an acknowledgement of his humanity. There was never any disagreement that the promised Messiah would be a man. He would come from the lineage of David. Everyone knew he would be human. The Messiah had been foretold, anticipated, and talked about for centuries. So to acknowledge Jesus as the promised Messiah that the world had been waiting for was certainly a bold claim. But the second was even bigger because it's the one we didn't anticipate. The second phrase was an acknowledgement of his divinity. Now, as we'll see later in the text, Peter may have been confused on the mission of Jesus, but he wasn't confused about his identity. As the Messiah, he was fully man, come to rescue his people from their bondage. And as the son of God, he was no mere man, but he was divinity in the flesh. Jesus' response to Peter's answer beginning in verse 17 is absolutely essential and is foundational to authentic Christian faith. Verse 17, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You see, before Peter could start high-fiving and chest-bumping his fellow disciples for their brilliant answer, Jesus quickly brings him back to earth by letting him know that he and the others didn't figure this out on their own. It was divinely revealed to them 
as it is to us today. That's what Jesus reiterates in the, in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 where he said, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the first mark of a disciple is one who rightly understands who they are following. The next mark is knowing what you're part of. I think verse, verse 18 may be one of the most controversial in all of Scripture, primarily over the role of Peter. But I think we can cut through some of the fog by identifying what is the main focus of this verse, which I think we can all agree is the church, not Peter. Jesus, Jesus further clarifies their identity as part of a community of faith that he is establishing with the disciples and Peter as their primary spokesperson. Now, they obviously couldn't understand at this point how incredibly large and diverse this community of disciples would become. But he's letting them know that they are the first members of something that he is building through them that is awesome and indestructible. When you look at the book of Acts, there is no evidence that Jesus was establishing Peter as the, the first supreme leader of the church. The evidence in Acts points to Peter as the rock and that he was the first to proclaim the gospel publicly after the day of Pentecost. And thus Christ began building his church first through the preaching of Peter. In Acts 2, he was the first to preach the gospel to the Jews. And in Acts 10, we see that he was also the first disciple to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter himself describes the church as every believer being a living stone, being built into a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. That's the picture. We see this verb. If you look at, if you go back to the Greek text, you'll see that there is a difference between Petra and Petros. Peter was Petros, which literally means a stone. Petra is a rock. Okay, Christ was building him church on the, on the, primarily on him, the rock, the cornerstone of the church. And Peter, the first of many stones, living stones like us, being built into a, into a spiritual house. And thus, every disciple is part of this ever-expanding community would have the responsibility, like Peter, to proclaim the gospel and through that, the church would grow unimpeded by human or demonic efforts. When God's people proclaim the gospel, Christ builds his church, and hell is as defenseless as the Texans were against the chiefs to stop it. Too soon? <laughs> uh, J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, the Bloody Marys have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then they pass away and go on to their own place. The true, true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. 
This church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world, and it will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which is often burning, and yet it is not consumed. So next we see in verse 18 that Jesus begins this greatest pep talk of all time. And then in verse 18, and then he ramps it up even more in verse 19 when he says this. He says, I will give you the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now that sounds like some serious power, doesn't it? But before you run out here with your, with your kingdom keys, loosing and binding everything in sight, let's make sure that we have the right context. Because I believe that many have run into theological ditches with this verse. I think it's important that we keep in mind that the immediate context here that Jesus is talking about is what? He's talking about building his church. I'm very appreciative of the CSB translation here as I think it gives a very clear picture of the verb tense, which is crucial to this text. Whatever you bind on earth, present tense or future tense, will have been loosed in heaven. Past tense. You see, our proclamation of the gospel is not determinative of what happens in heaven. We don't have that power. Sorry. The gospel proclamation is bringing into reality what has already been determined and accomplished in heaven. I think to help to see it, it's good to see this text through the lens of Romans 8.29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So we see the formation process of a disciple here is fivefold, isn't it? And it goes in this order sequentially. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And of these five, which is the only one that God chooses to use human means to accomplish? Calling, right? God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. We have nothing to do with foreknowledge or predestination or justification or glorification. That's God's work. But for some crazy reason, he chooses to use us to call. And when the gospel is proclaimed through us, God loosens the shackles of sin that had already been foreknown and predestined in heaven. And also when the gospel is proclaimed by men, it is deemed as foolishness to those who are perishing, remaining bound by sin as was also foreknown and predestined in heaven. The keys to the kingdom that we have been given is gospel proclamation. As 2 Corinthians 2.16 says, when proclaimed to some, we are an aroma of death leading to death. Binding on earth what has been bound in heaven, but to others an aroma of life leading to life, loosing on earth what has been loosed in heaven. Also, we read in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness 
to the Gentiles, binding on earth what has been bound in heaven. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This, this is the power and the purpose of a disciple of Jesus. Now, at this point, I imagine Peter, especially, but probably all the disciples are fired up. They are ready to storm the gates of hell and start wreaking messianic havoc. And they had to be thinking, you can just imagine Peter, this is it. It's go time. The Messiah is about to show the Roman Empire who is boss, and we get to be the field generals who make it happen. And then verse 21 happens. And Jesus immediately does what maybe would be the equivalent of an ice bucket challenge. Imagine their shock when Jesus chooses to close his motivational speech by pointing out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. What? The Messiah doesn't suffer and get killed. The Romans are the ones who are about to suffer and die, not you. It makes sense why Peter would take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him saying, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. You see, Peter may have rightly understood who Jesus was. He just didn't grasp yet who he came to free and which empire he came to destroy, right? Therefore, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. And it was at this moment that Jesus began to dismantle their understanding of the Messiah and what it meant to be one of his followers. He says, okay, you really want to follow me? Great. But you got to know what I'm about to do. I'm about to deny myself. I'm about to take on the form of a servant. I'm about to take up a cross and be obedient to my Father's will and be slain. And only after that will I triumphantly walk out of the tomb three days later and then be given a name that is above every name and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, if you really want to be my followers, then you got to know where I'm going. And you've got to know that you too will be asked to deny yourselves. You will be asked to take up a cross. You may be asked to die a martyr's death in obedience as well. History records that in fact, after the ascension of Jesus, every single apostle denied the comforts of this life to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And each was persecuted, each was condemned, and each died a martyr's death, many via crucifixion. 
Jesus didn't try to hide this aspect of discipleship. This wasn't buried in the fine print somewhere. John records these words of Jesus in chapter 15 of his gospel. He said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He doesn't exactly stutter, does he? And as history proves, this indestructible force that we know is the church of Jesus Christ has in fact been built through the fires of persecution and with the blood of countless martyrs through every century, including the 21st. It shouldn't be a shock to you that the religious freedom and the absence of persecution that we currently enjoy in America is in fact a very rare exception. And it's one that likely will not last much longer. And hear me, that's not a bad thing. Cultural Christianity is the product of our religious comfort. Steal a phrase from my friend Wes Houston. Our culture is filled with many fans, but few followers. But you see, as we're already seeing, as the heat of cultural pressure against biblical Christianity increases, the fans are jumping ship in droves. And it's just a matter of time before pressure gives way to persecution, and I say, let it come. Amen? Because it's mainly through persecution that the true church grows wider and deeper and stronger. So what we have to ask ourselves is, are we really serious about being part of the construction crew of Christ's church? Or are we just content to slap a fish sticker on our car, go to a few religious meetings, and yet in the meantime, invest all of our time and energy into building our cozy little kingdoms? So the obvious question in light of this is, who in the right mind would actually sign up for this, right? Hated? Persecuted? Killed? Not exactly a great recruiting pitch, right? And the answer that leads us to my last point, and that is the prize of a disciple. Unfortunately, this is how Jesus ends his talk, beginning in verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will reward each according to what he has done. This is the great choice that each of us has to make. Which life do you want to keep? And which life are you willing to lose? Each of us has a temporal life. And each of us has an eternal life. 
But hear me, you can only invest in one. By nature, we are all prone to to live like the old cliche, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? We cling to what we have now, even if the promise of door number two is infinitely greater. But we all must choose. We all are choosing now, today, how you live your lives. In effect, everyone is either saying like the, like the poet William Henry, Henley, not Henry, William Henley, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. You may not say those words, but your life certainly lives those words. Or you can say like the apostle Paul, but everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of what? Of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, to be conformed to his death, assuming that somehow I will reach the resurrection from the dead. This is the prize of the disciple. We gain Christ. And it's only through his marvelous gift of faith that we can see that there indeed is no persecution so great. There is no suffering so intense and there is no death so brutal that it isn't worth enduring for the surpassing worth of gaining Christ. Scripture promises in 2 Timothy that if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. So there it is. We can deny ourselves or we can deny Christ. The choice is clear. And hear me, Scripture doesn't leave us an option to deny neither. Yet, I think if we're really honest, it's exactly what most of us try to do, isn't it? Myself included. I like the equation that Jeff has referred to many times. God plus anything equals nothing. But God plus nothing equals everything. So in conclusion, all of this, all of this begins with the all-important question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that 2,000 years ago, God himself took on flesh, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and allowed himself to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. 
Do you believe that your sinful rebellion warrants eternal separation from God in hell? And you are powerless on your own to remedy your plight. Do you believe that he who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of Christ? Do you believe that this God-man Jesus really did storm out of his own grave three days after being put into it as a lifeless corpse? Conquering sin and conquering death so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And do you believe that if we deny ourselves and die to our self-autonomy, And like Paul, we consider our lives as of no value, nor as precious to ourselves, that we will in fact spend all of eternity in his presence, which infinitely exceeds our greatest imagination. We will be in a place where Christ is present and sin isn't. Grasp that. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you believe this? And more importantly, and more importantly, does your life testify that you in fact believe this? I mean, if this is nothing but a big fable and a a lie, then, then write me off and, and laugh at me as a bumbling fool. But if this is true, if this book, if this book is true, then we would all be fools not to do some serious self-examination of our lives. Scripture bluntly says that the road that leads to destruction is wide and easy and that not everyone who calls him Lord will have eternal life. So if you have never thought deeply about this before, then I would plead with you today. I beg you, think deeply about it today. Jesus is still asking the same question that he did of his disciples in our text Who do you say that I am? Because you see, at the end of the day, it's the only question in life that really matters. Pray with me. Holy Father, your word in Matthew 16 is both encouraging and convicting. God, even as I pray, would you, would you ask this great question to everyone in this room? Who do you say that I am? Who do you really say that I am? And God, would you then reveal or confirm the answer in our hearts? If there are those here who openly reject your identity as the Messiah and the Son of God today, God, would you open their eyes through your gift of faith to see them rightly, to see you rightly. 
And God, if there are any here today who may proclaim rightly who you are with their mouths, but they don't really believe it with their hearts and their life is absorbed with self-absorption. And in such, they actually testify against the verbal claim that they make. God, would you reveal even now the true condition of their heart and may they truly see you as their Lord and Savior. And God, would they turn from a life of building their own little kingdoms to denying themselves for the sake of building your kingdom. And Father, finally, if by your grace you have called us to yourself and we do rightly see you, God, would your word today move us to examine areas in our lives that we still must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. Father, would you fill our hearts with compassion for those around us who are hurting, who are broken, who are lost. God, would we sacrifice our comforts, our lives, our our dreams so that through our words and actions that we would in fact be an aroma of life leading them to hope and to life in you. It's in your holy name we pray this. Amen.